Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, a journalist's perspective on business in the region. I think that highlights one of the strengths of this region. They start with a problem, and then they try to work to fill that problem as opposed to trying to create a new market. I've been forming the impression more and more frequently that our region in some ways has reached another inflection point. There have been others along the way. There was the internet bubble back in the late 90s. There was the cybersecurity boom that consumed a lot of resources and time in the aftermath of 9-11. We had the accelerator boom with 1776. And, you know, it seems like we've hit a little bit of a wall. And to talk about where we are is my friend Andy Medici. He is the money reporter at the Washington Business Journal, an expert on and a real commentator on how this region's been growing. So I want to talk with him today about where he, he thinks we are as a community. Andy, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. Well, you've been, um, I think, the closest thing that our region's had to an umpire, uh, you know, calling balls and strikes around the tech and, and money economy for a number of years now. What are you seeing? Do you think we're at an inflection point? I, I appreciate that, Jonathan. I think what Amazon has shown us is that a lot of what the region is and still is, is attracting sort of larger legacy companies to the region, just like Marriott moving their headquarters or Nestle. We talk a lot about the startup community, but in that vein, while we've seen more startup capital in this region, it's proportional to the rest of the country. We haven't exceeded expectations on that front, and we haven't exceeded uh, our own thoughts on where we are. So we're still number four or five or six when it comes to those indications. And I think despite a, a large movement to sort of rise of the rest to to bring other communities into the fold on startup capital. It largely remains a Silicon Valley, New York game. Do you think that, um, so it's funny you say four or five or six, you know, there are quarters where our funding level in VC is 10th and, and there've been one or two where it's been three. It, it, our region seems to be driven by one or two mega deals. You know, if we get them, the numbers are good. If we don't get them, not so much. And we don't have a lot of venture funds here that are being newly raised based upon the local market. I mean, other than Blue Delta, I don't think we have a local fund that's being raised off local companies. Are you seeing anybody else? So I understand your point, which is, can companies raise a fund based off of investing specifically in the D.C. area? And you're right. There are very few of those. We have companies that have raised money and have invested in the D.C. area, but not as a thesis. And I think it would be really hard to make that a thesis. You know, the District of Columbia is working on building up a fund, an inclusive innovation fund that would focus just on D.C. They, I don't think they've made any investments yet, uh, but they'll be sub $10 million, so not of a size. You know, we've seen a lot of corporate venture capital, not focused on this area, but will coincidentally make investments. The Motley Fools raised a fund. Sands Capital have raised a fund. But they will probably tell you that while they make investments in this area, uh, they are largely geographically agnostic. So you're right, you know, not a specific focus. You couldn't create a fund like you could in Silicon Valley and just focus on that area, for yeah, example. And I think that uh, that is an important point is that a number of our indigenous fund managers that did raise funds in the in the aughts or, or later around a DC thesis, that they've largely uh, migrated away or, or gone out of business. But yet, a couple of years ago, I studied very closely the merger and acquisition patterns for our marketplace compared to Silicon Valley. And I think you and I talked about at the time, the markets are roughly equivalent from the standpoint of activity and number of deals and, and velocity and wealth creation. So do you scratch your head sometimes and say, you know, because you're a journalist, it's your job to understand the story. How does it parse that we can have an active 
community where a lot of wealth is created, but not have the startup community that many people seem to think you have to have in order to have a lot of M and A, a lot of wealth creation. I think it's interesting because startups and venture capital, uh, they take up a lot of the oxygen and they take a lot of buzz. But ultimately, they're just a very small portion of the overall money market. You know, New Enterprise Associates, the one of the largest venture capital firms in the world, has about twenty billion in assets under management. But Sands Capital, which is just downtown uh, across the street, has forty-two billion, and they're just one private equity company. Private equity, for example, dwarfs venture capital. So we look at the M and A market. A lot of it's driven by private equity. A lot of it's driven by larger uh, corporate mergers and acquisitions. So in a way, you can have a thriving or at least a very solid M and A market that doesn't rely on venture capital or doesn't rely on those buyouts. And as we've seen recently with acquisitions um, by social t- uh, of social tables and of others, that private equity is reaching sort of earlier into the company's lifespan to grab those. So, you know, we've seen some successes in the venture world. Appian is a $3.5 billion market cap company. Uh, they took some venture money, although not a lot. And its founder, Matt Calkins, will probably tell you that they didn't really need all of the, what they took. But those are fewer and farther between than sort of more traditional companies that end up uh, getting acquired sort of in a more traditional sense. So there's money here. It's, it's more maybe mature money or it's more corporate money. And by the same token, it seems that a lot of the efforts that were launched over the last few years to do startups, 1776 being the best example, they, they seem to have withered away. Uh, yeah, the 1776, as we know it now, uh, is owned by a Philadelphia-based company that used to be called Benjamin's Desk, and they, they purchased 1776 and the name. Um, the 1776 seed fund was small. It was a good attempt uh, at trying to do something local. But you were right. You know, that entity is making small, only small investments now, add-on investments uh, with extra money. But there really aren't a lot of those institutions left. You know, a Disruption Corp failed, and it failed in a sort of pretty, pretty spectacular fashion. Um, and we haven't seen a lot of those sorts of systems replaced. You know, Mach 37 sort of went by the wayside. It's currently being managed as sort of a half-and-half half consulting. But at the end of the day, you know, those movements, sort of the local-specific movements, a lot of those have gone by the wayside as people sort of expand geographically and they sort of use technology now to, to just create a larger pipeline. That's usually across the country. So when you cover um, a company like uh, an industry dive or a, a canvas as two recent examples of companies that have you know, gotten significant private equity investments, I mean, what are the hallmarks of these types of businesses um, that grow here? Well, uh, industry dive is a great example because it's – a very successful company in a space where people don't think there can be much successes anymore, which is in news and publishing, which is an area that we've actually had previous successes with, Vox being an example. But Industry Dive, it, the hallmarks uh, with its co-founder, Sean Griffey, who still runs it, was very limited initial funding, sub one million, niche markets, and then an absolute focus on execution within those markets. They didn't skimp on the journalism, and they built publications that people wanted to read in very specific markets, in waste management, in construction management. Uh, They've been branching out. I think they're in banking now as well. So they have a number of verticals. I think there's a focus on very specific niches in markets that are healthy, and that's what you saw success with this industry dive. Meanwhile, you have companies recently such as GoCanvas and Interfolio, which really found their niche within very specific business processes. And I think that highlights one of the strengths of this region. They start with a problem, and then they try to work to fill that problem as opposed to trying to create a new market. 
Silicon Valley, I think, is known for creating new markets where there didn't used to be one. Airbnb is a great example where uh, house sharing really, although it existed for you know ages before this, wasn't formalized in some sort of network that was easier to use. So you have GoCanvas and you have Interfolio and even social tables, which found a home in, in specific niches in an effort to fill a specific business need. So there's built-in customers, there's built-in markets, and I think that's a hallmark of a, of a successful sort of local company. I actually have found over the years that what you're describing is, I think, one of the distinguishing characteristics of this business community and that because there's not a lot of available risk capital, uh, people who want to start businesses are hyper-focused on finding customers really quickly. So they tend to go into niches rather than try to create – because creating a new market requires a lot of money on the come. Uh, so it's not surprising. It, it, it's one of these interesting questions, which came first, the uh, the lack of money or the um, the entrepreneurs that are improvisational, or is it the other way around, that money doesn't come in the early stages because it's not necessary? I think there's a good chicken or the egg type of problem there. I do say that I think sometimes the prevalence of huge amounts of money tends to distort markets. We've seen SoftBank make a number of investments. Uh, we work at a $47 billion valuation, which has sort of evaporated in recent days as people have sort of taken a hard look at the company. But those sorts of mega funding deals, they do tend to distort markets by raising valuations, but also it by making it seem normal for companies not to reach a sort of cash flow break even or positive point. Um, you're just drawing out that pain longer. So I think in DC, a lot of companies, sometimes fortunately, sometimes unfortunately, have to make those difficult choices early on as opposed to later. How do I grow? How do I grow sustainably? What does the endpoint look like? How long do I have? And I think that's a discussion that in other places is delayed longer because of that amount of money. Now, I will say that there are companies that have complained to me privately that uh, they don't end up raising money here. They do end up raising money from New York or elsewhere. So I think, could there be some more local money? Sure. But does SoftBank have a beneficial effect on the market? I think that remains to be seen. As you look at this market and the crossroads and and I look at it uh, as as well. What do you think is going to be uh, the the good news or the the things that we're going to build our economy on, innovation economy, in over the next two three years? I think the good news is that we are probably going to be more resistant to whatever recession comes our way. I know that that's something that people have talked about, but historically, the federal government has been sort of a buffer. But I think in many ways, we have larger legacy companies that might shield us better from that impact. I think some of the good news is that we're going to see new players. I, I really do think we're going to see new players emerge on the funding front. I think there are going to be some interesting experiments locally to see what works and what doesn't. But ultimately, I think what people have done, which they've always done, is build sort of strong revenue-focused companies on specific products, uh, one that we haven't talked about yet but is always in the front of people's minds is Cvent, right, which is sort of a long-time, long-growth, long-road hard road story for its founder, Reggie Agarwal, which ended in a $1.65 billion purchase by private equity. And I think sometimes it's easy to look at the funding numbers from venture capital and see DC further down than people would like. But there are still success stories to be made here. And I think that's always something that uh, people should keep in their mind, that there are stories that are made here. Andy, you're always interested. And like I said earlier, you really are a great resource for the region. Thanks for always making sure that the stories are told accurately and uh, with promptness. So thanks for all the work you do in the region. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Andy Medici, Money Reporter at the Washington Business Journal. And now, non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. 
In a city jam-packed with lawyers, does the Beltway really need more? Apparently, yes. This year saw graduates from our local law schools as robust as ever, including colleagues and the sons and daughters of good friends locally and nationally. And this fall, more sons and daughters of friends and family will start as 1Ls in law schools across the nation. With tuition costs higher than ever, law firms slowing down hiring of young attorneys and the profession bursting at the seams, why is everyone still going to law school? First, law school teaches you more than the law. The skills of critical thinking, analysis, and issue spotting can be applied to virtually any profession or career path. Second, the career choices for today's law graduates are as diverse as they have ever been, especially in the D.C. region. Policy, lobbying, government, trade associations, in-house law, outhouse law, law firms of various shapes, sizes, and specialties, business development roles, technology, life sciences, and many more are all careers that can leverage a law degree and the skills you learn in law school. If you, a friend, a loved one, or a colleague is considering law school, here are a few tips and best practices. Number one, choose a law school whose curriculum is truly aligned with your education and career goals, not just because it's a good brand name. Number two, don't waste three years and six figures worth of tuition without a game plan. Decide as early on as possible where and how you want to focus within the many career paths and specialties within the law so that you can load up on courses, clinics, experiences, internships, and other things that will strengthen your story and your eventual resume. Third, take nothing for granted. You can get accepted into one of the top law schools in the country, but somebody's got to be in the bottom quartile of the class. So be strategic in your final selection. Pay careful attention to the opportunities that are right in your backyard. This will help you choose not only the law school to go to, but the city in which you want to spend the next three years. Where are the jobs, the internships, the events, the networking, the learning opportunities? They all vary from market to market. Where do you want to live for three years? And it's likely that you may be getting a job offer from that region. Will it maximize your learning opportunities and experiences? The law will not be replaced by robots anytime soon. But be sure to be thoughtful and strategic before committing to this demanding but highly rewarding profession. That was your non-billable consult with legal expert Andrew Sherman. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Salesforce Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.